Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 40, 41st episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is bringing bluegrass to the world. I'm joined by Paul Jenkins, the author of Bluegrass Ambassadors, the McLean Family Band in Appalachia and the World. The publisher is West Virginia University Press. Paul O. Jenkins is a university librarian at Franklin Pierce University, a music lover since childhood. He has written books and articles on numerous musicians, including Richard Dyer Bennett, McLean Family Band, and the Beatles. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. Absolutely. So help us out. Who is the McLean Family Band, and how did you get interested in them? Yeah, so in 1979, um, my father, an English professor at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, came home with a big smile on his face and a stack of LPs. And they were um, LPs by this bluegrass band called the McLean Family Band. And my father, a huge Mozart and jazz lover, had never listened to bluegrass music before. And so I was very surprised he was so interested in a bluegrass group. But he couldn't stop talking about their infectious energy and enthusiasm. And so I put the LPs on our old record player, and voila, I fell in love with the band. I had not listened to much bluegrass at all. At the time, I was 18, um, senior in high school. And um, I felt these these people were really special and uh, sort of had an appeal for me that no other bluegrass groups had had before. I'd uh, typically listen to pop music and folk music. So um, that really uh, sort of switched on the light for me for both Bluegrass and the McLean Family Band in particular. So I was a lifelong fan, but um, then about seven or eight years ago when I was living in Cincinnati, I decided to try to start researching them for a possible book because um, the institution where I worked in Cincinnati was about two hours drive away from Berea, Kentucky, which is where the um, McLeans were based, and Berea College held their archives. And so I thought I could go there and start um, researching the band. And um, pretty soon I put together a book proposal, and it got accepted. And um, seven years after starting the project, uh, the book (laughs) appeared. You, You know what that's like, Dan. I do know what that's like, indeed. So I, I'm curious. I mean, so you fell in love with this group. You didn't really expect to. You didn't expect your dad to bring home this this record. Has there been other groups like this? Did this lead into a wider interest in bluegrass and perhaps even country music? Or have you stayed more with the, the folk and the pop? And this is kind of the exception because they're just that exceptional of a band. Um, they are still my favorite bluegrass band, but there are a couple others that I've come to like. There's a guy named Sam Gleaves who is um, one of the first openly gay uh, bluegrass musicians, and he is exceptional. 
And he actually helped with the book because he knows the McLeans as well. And then the Price Sisters are um, a, uh, a sister act from um, Ohio. And they have also studied with the McLeans at Moorhead, in, um, Moorhead University in uh Kentucky. And so I've gotten to know them, actually wrote a short article about them. And uh, so those are probably my, my favorite uh, groups uh, right now in uh, bluegrass music anyway. Okay. So I, I taught college for a couple of years in the Ozarks, and that's really where I got my introduction to bluegrass music. But assuming some of the listeners don't know a lot about it, can you put it into a context for us? I mean, country music, I assume this is related to that as a genre, but what are the affinities and the differences between country music, which obviously has many varieties within itself as well? Yeah, some people call um, bluegrass music kind of like the jazz of country music. It, it's uh, kind of a subset. Um, and jazz is a good comparison because there's a lot of improvisation in bluegrass, just as there is in jazz, and also the instrumental virtuosity is featured. And both are, of course, uniquely American musical genres. Um, bluegrass is actually closer to like old time or mountain music than it is to country music. And the distinctions can be very fine between all these different genres. In fact, there's even an expression um, called W-I-B-A that stands for what is bluegrass anyway? <laughs> and and the cognoscenti can get very impassioned about this topic. Um, for example, they... If a band uses a, an electric bass or drums, that's completely heretical. Um, and, uh, but anyway, m most experts agree on the following elements. Um, use of acoustic instruments, instrumental virtuosity, high-pitched lead and harmony singing. Um, there are lots of instrumentals in bluegrass music. And the songs often touch on core values of love, home, and faith. And that, that's a similarity to country music, certainly. So, so you mentioned mountain music. So maybe I should have asked a different question. What is the difference between mountain music and bluegrass music? Yeah, and, and again, that gets very complicated too. Bluegrass <laughs> music, it, it's usually a little bit uh, faster than uh, mountain or old-time music. And the instrumental virtuosity in bluegrass music is not always found in uh, mountain or old-time music. But, but they're, yeah, they're very similar. I mean, these are... This is a style of music that the um, people who moved to the Appalachia re region from Scotland and Ireland brought with them. Okay, so Raymond K. McLean is, I guess, the, the patriarch of the, of the band. And you have a quote in the book that I, I wanted to recite back to you and have you maybe explicate for us because it's a really delicious and intriguing quote. Uh, he's describing the music as having the sincerity of the Anglo-Saxon ballad, the hoopla of the minstrel show, that one really surprised me, the sociability of the singing games, the loneliness of cowboy life, the sass of ragtime, the fervor of the camp meeting, and the pathos of the blues. That's a mouthful. Any part of that you want to take on? <laughs> yes. Yeah, Raymond Kay was a, was a remarkable fellow, and it was fun talking to his kids um, for the book, uh, and they're obviously you know, so, so proud of him. But um, his quotation reflects the, the range of bluegrass music. And, and I like the use of his word sincerity regarding ballad singing uh, in particular. There's a real sense of longing in most bluegrass singing. Um, the hoopla is probably has, has a lot to do with like the instrumental virtuosity that I've mentioned a couple times. And in the McLean's case, um, even uh, includes clog dancing. Nancy Ann McLean would clog dance 
while the band was playing. And so that, that's a little bit of the hoopla element. Um, and there's a tradition of comedy in bluegrass music too. Sometimes there would be um, uh, members of the band would be, would have little comic sketches and stuff in the middle of a performance. Uh, sociability is like involving the crowd uh, in participating in the band's infectious, infectious joy. And um, there's a guy, Al White, married Alice McLean in 1977, I believe, and he came from the American Southwest. So he brought some elements of Western swing to the band, like Bob Wills, Take Me Back to Tulsa. So that's not, not quite cowboy music, but um, it's getting there. And and Ruth McLean did sing I Want to Be a Cowboy Sweetheart, um, a, uh, a famous country song, by the way. But Raymond K. loved ragtime piano, so he incorporated uh, some rags uh, performed on traditional bluegrass instruments, not piano, into the band's repertoire. Fervor, the camp meeting, uh, really indicates the prominent role that gospel songs play in, in bluegrass music. Um, nearly every bluegrass band includes gospel songs in their performances, and the McLean family band was no exception there. They uh, recorded an album dedicated solely to gospel songs, for example. And then finally, they, they did include a number of blues songs in their repertoire, like Milk Cow Blues or Little Walter's Blue and Lonesome. So that, that touches on some of the elements of that quote, at least. Okay. No, no, you did You did an admirable job, in fact. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the book that actually the family was not from there. I don't remember if they came down from Ohio or someplace else. Yes. Yes, Ohio. Okay. So they are in Appalachia. They are evoking Appalachia, but they are not necessarily, you know, from Appalachia, at least, you know, back to ancestry. How do they reflect the region? I'm really interested in sense of place. The Irish poet Seamus Haney said, sense of place issues in a point of view. How does their music reflect Appalachia and the really hard scrabble background of Appalachia? Yeah, the, the book is actually part of the uh, Sounding Appalachia series from the West Virginia University Press. Um, there's a lot of joy and sorrow in Appalachia, and it's a region known for its strong faith and old-fashioned values. Um, some scholars have speculated that since the predominant faith of the Appalachian people that's generally fundamentalist Protestantism um, doesn't require strict church attendance in order for its practitioners to gain salvation, that music has come to play a proportionally larger role as an expression of their faith than is the case for other sects. And there's a scholar, I think is um, Howard Marshall, um, believes that because Protestants don't have the equivalent to Catholicism's confessional, that gospel music allows its ad adherents to feel saved and to express belief in salvation. Um, you know, the scholars can, can start to uh, get a little carried away sometimes. But so, 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 so the McLeans were, were not native to Appalachia, but they respected and loved its traditions. And, and they actually chose to live there after um, Raymond Kay, the family patriarch, um, took a job at the Heinemann Settlement School in 1956. Um, he, he was a native of Ohio. And, and he just grew to love the culture so much and decided to stay there. And when the band was starting out, um, they didn't really know what kind of music they wanted to play. They actually uh, played some Beatles songs. They played some popular music um, selections, but they eventually settled on the music of the region, which is, is bluegrass. And the, um, the McLean's children, you know, they, they grew up obviously speaking the way their parents did. 
And the teachers in the classroom used to ask um, Alice to uh, pronounce certain words for the rest of the class. I believe the word oil is one example. Um, to demonstrate to the other people, the children who had been born uh, as native Appalachians, how the word should be pronounced in proper English. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was, they were very much, they took to the region, but they weren't native to the region. And, and they, were, they were conscious of that. But obviously, since all the kids were born there, they did grow to be part of the region and felt comfortable there. Okay. Well, speaking of taking to a region or taking to the music, I, I'm curious if there's any chance, and this will be a stretch, no doubt, um, but that you might have taken to the music for for certain ancestral reasons. And I say that because uh, not long ago on Netflix, I was watching The Crown, and there turns out to be a coal mining incident, a terrible one, in Wales. And the Queen eventually belatedly comes to visit the bereaved families, and some of them are lined up to greet the Queen. And as they go down the lineup, one of these uh, miners has the last name of Jenkins. Oh, yes. So I'm going to assume you are Welsh, at least in part. Uh, it is a coal mining region. Um, is there any chance that that has some play for why this is so evocative for you? Or is it really just the enthusiasm and the musical inventiveness? I, th- I think there's a little element there. Um, yes, I'm, I'm very Welsh. Uh, Jenkins, Williams, and Jones are three of my um uh, grandparents' names, and then Shannon, so there's a little Irish in there, too. But the the, uh, the Welsh people are known for their singing, and especially their choral singing. And um, my my father, um, a Jenkins, and my mother, a Jones, um, certainly sort of inculcated into us the fact that, that we were Welsh growing up. And I, I think that does have something to do with it, yes. Uh, we used to listen to a lot of Welsh choir music when I was a kid. Um, my parents were great. They introduced me to all sorts of different kinds of music. Okay. Um, just was curious, had, had to try out that, that tangent for a moment. So <laughs> go, going, going back to the, to the band, um, there's several things that strike me, even just about the composition of the band and the era, the timing for the band. So one is that they have, uh, was it, I mean, maybe wrong this, at least two, I know one replaced another, but uh, it seemed to me when I watched some things on YouTube, it was uh, two members always seemed to be female. And it wasn't always true back in the era, especially to have uh, women who were not merely singers, but also musicians. Uh, because I, I did a little checking on this. So now the women's organization formed in 1966. Uh, this band, you know, formed in 1968. At that point, now had 1,035 members total in America. So, um, you know, Joni Mitchell was just getting going. Bonnie Raitt was kind of over the horizon. So just from a gender composition, uh, this band already strikes me as unique. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, And they talk about that a lot in the book. Uh, There's a great book, by the way, called Pretty Good for a Girl by Murphy Henry, which is about how women kind of came to be part of bluegrass music because they, they were not part of bluegrass music to a great extent, and the McLeans were, were some of the um, pioneers in that region. There's another uh, famous family band called the Lewis Family Band that also had a number of female members. But yes, Alice uh, McLean played uh, mandolin and was the, uh, the lead singer early on, and Ruth McLean was the uh, bass player and also an excellent mandolin player and, and a wonderful singer. And they were um, a very uh, central part of the group. And it, it was pretty unusual for um, especially young girls because the McLeans, when they started out, the, 
the kids were all very young. I mean, these these were 14, 15, 16 year olds playing at festivals. And they um, they actually talk about how a lot of the um, more established performers very, very much accepted and welcomed them. But at the same time, um, it, it was unusual and they did ha- kind of have to break a little bit of new ground there. Sure. And the the other angle that got my attention was that they're intergenerational. I mean, this is a group starting in 1968, about the same time that that saying, don't trust anyone over the age of 30 or 35 or whatever the saying was. So to get on the stage with uh, your, your dad wouldn't exactly be cool in 1968, <laughs> uh, but it was for them. Anything you want to say on that front? Yeah, that that is an interesting point. In bluegrass music, it's interesting when you go to festivals because the um, you see a lot of very young people and you see a lot of people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And um, it really does speak to, to all generations. And uh, again, they, they the McLeans just completely revered their uh, their father, um, Raymond Kay, and um, he he pretty much kept in the background. He wrote a lot of their original songs, but on stage he did introduce most of the songs. But he he mainly played rhythm guitar and let his um, kids kind of take the spotlight. Okay, well, the, the lucky dad where all his kids actually like him and show it in public. Um, yes. Remarkable. Um, also remarkable is that the band could stay together for so long. I mean, family dynamics, you know, and music don't always go together. I'm thinking, for instance, of the very famous spat between Tom Fogarty and John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival. Uh, when Tom Fogarty was dying, uh, people had to intervene to get John to even come to the bedside of his brother. Um, so this is a family that managed to hang together uh, from watching the the video links that you suggested to me. Uh, especially a few of them, the, the, you know, the woman who sings lead and the kind of the virtuoso in the band were noticeably happy and enjoying performing. Um, what is it about the group dynamics that allowed this group to survive and thrive for so long? We're talking about a group starting in 68 that came back and did a reunion album in 2018. That is a long stretch of time. Yeah. 50 years together as a band. Um, I, I, it was funny when I was interviewing them, I I, <laughs> I sort of wanted to ask them the question like, gosh, you know, you guys seem so happy with each other, but surely there must have been some family squabbles. I, I didn't actually ask that question. I, I didn't think it was really polite, um, but they, they genuinely enjoy each other's company and um, they bring out the best in each other. They make a, um, a lot about the fact that it's um, every band member's job to bring out the best in his or her fellow band member. Um, yeah, and, and it shows in their performances. They are very genuine people who genuinely like what they're doing and genuinely like each other. It's, uh, it's very refreshing. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think what I, I picked up from the book was this infectious energy. In fact, there was a comparison to having that in common with Paul McCartney was a reference. We'll come back to the Beatles here in a moment. But would you say in their songwriting and their performances, are, are there certain emotions that stand out for you besides happiness? Is there some other ones that are, are prevalent or at least arise in certain compositions by, by certain members? Yeah, they, I make a big point in the book about talking about uh, the joy that they showed, the optimism, the cheerfulness. Um, and they were known for their cheerful outlook on life. And they're actually sometimes dinged for it by reviewers. There was uh, one guy um, who uh, 
claim that they the dark and the haunted side of bluegrass music is completely absent from the music of, of the McLean family. Some people see this as a plus and others as a minus. You know, in the, in the high lonesome sound and awful often doleful subject matter of bluegrass music, they really stood out and were different. But um, besides their their cheerful th- uh, material, they were also able to sing songs that were more meaningful and, and very moving. Um, some traditional songs in bluegrass music like Fair and Tender Ladies or East Virginia Blues. But they also wrote some original songs, um, ones uh, called like uh, Let Time Walk By and Leave Me, uh, Kentucky Wind, Our Song, Sail Away. These are all very um, moving and powerful songs. So they, they did the cheerful stuff, but they could also do the really meaningful and moving um, songs. And they also, uh, Raymond Kay wrote a number of very good songs about the, uh, the power of music. He, he really celebrated the power of music. There's one called My Name's Music, um, Enter If You Dare, This Sensuous Affair, My Name's Music. Um, and another one called Foolish Pleasure um, that states, uh, bringing folks together is my business. And um, they, uh, they really were able to, to uh, span a very broad range in um, their performances and their repertoire and really excelled at, at all elements. Well, speaking of that range, I mean, I'm struck by the fact that they're not from Appalachia by a family background, yet they, you know, uh, you know, practice, you know, very well, one of its foremost, you know, cultural forms, uh, that they're from a quote unquote backwoods area, and yet they are global ambassadors. Uh, what is it? 60 countries they went to? Yeah. Yeah. They were literally all over the world. They um, often traveled under the auspices of the State Department. And they were they were perfect ambassadors um, for bluegrass music because uh, they were very patient. Um, they were full of joy. They uh, tried to uh, get to know the people uh, in the countries they visited and learn some native songs to include in their performances. Um, and uh, they really uh, picked up. They had their fingers on the pulse of all the different countries they went to, and uh, they were very clean cut. And they were keenly aware that they were not only introducing bluegrass music to those who had never heard it before, but also that they were representing their country. And as you know, America does not always enjoy a great reputation throughout the world. I mean, they were in Africa, they were in the Far East, they were in South America, they were in Central America, um, all over the place. And um, Sometimes uh, people just thought of Americans as either cowboys or gangsters, believe it or not, still in the, in the 1970s. And uh, they really tried to put their best foot forward as cultural as well as musical ambassadors. And again, they succeeded uh, brilliantly in this area. Well, I, I think that's great. I just I, I love things that uh, defy expectations and move across boundaries. But they would have had back in Kentucky some people who did not get to 60 countries how were they received? Were they immediately popular? Did they kind of evolve a cult following? Then it blossomed from there. I mean, what was their relationship, you know, with the people in the region itself? Yeah, they um, worked their way up, just like all bluegrass bands have to. They um, they started playing like at uh, uh, local parks, and um, they would would open and for bigger bands. And, but mainly, they they got popular on the uh, festival circuit. Um, where, you know, if you go to a bluegrass festival, they're often um, two days long and you can see, you know, 17 different bands and you've got your little um, half hour set here and a half hour set there. 
and they really gained a following. Um, and then Bill Monroe discovered them at, at a festival, you know, Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass music. And he started inviting them to the bigger festivals. And that's where they really started to uh, get a name. And there's a number of pictures in the book that show the members of the McLean family band with Bill Monroe. And um, Monroe loved the band. Um, and uh, he really liked the way they performed as well as their virtuosity. We haven't talked a lot about Raymond W. McLean yet, but he was the band's uh, virtuoso. He was an amazing banjo player. But then he also just decided he better learn how to fiddle as well, because the fiddle is another very important music in bluegrass, uh, or very important instrument in bluegrass music. And he became a really good fiddler, too. I mean, the, the, the guy was just incredible and a, and a very good guitar player. So, um, yeah, they, they worked their way up and then they, they uh, got exposed on the festival circuit. And then they started putting out like one album every year on their own label which is another one of their innovations, um, they decided to record in their own label, even though some of the bigger commercial labels wanted to record them. And they, they founded Country Life Records, and they put out one album a year for about 13 straight years between uh, 1973 and 1986, and um, gained a big following that way, too, back in the old days when they would sell their LPs at performances or people would just... Um, send checks in the mail and they would send out these LPs to people. So their, their following grew both, um, in America, they, they performed in all 50 States as well as all these countries overseas. Well, uh, in watching the, the video links that you suggested to me, I could see how the, the virtuosity player, then they really gravitated toward him and, you know, his energy, um, not that there wasn't plenty of energy from the rest, but you could really see them, you know, keying on him. Um, so before we run out of time here, I wanted to uh, make a comparison or shift gear just a bit because you've also written a book about the Beatles. Um, and I know that's a big love of yours from our, our conversations. So uh, the McLean family band and the Beatles, one's a bit more famous than the other, shall we say. But nevertheless, um, there must be some similarities there. What, what might you draw? Yeah, yeah, there are some good points of comparison. They did both play Carnegie Hall, by the way. Um, I, I compare them a lot, especially to the early Beatles. Um, they uh, they each performed songs that were very short. A lot of McLean family band songs are, are less than two minutes long. And as you know, the early Beatles usually clocked in between two minutes and two minutes and 22 seconds or something. They had tremendous skill in singing two, three, or in the case of McLean's, even four-part harmony. Um, each band's performances reflected a real sense of energy. Each band expanded the range of its genres. Uh, for example, the McLean's uh, performed with symphony and pop orchestras, and somebody wow. even wrote a um, bluegrass concerto for them, a guy named Phil Rhodes, who uh, <laughs> okay. taught at Carlton College. And... Um, so, um, and, and each, each band practiced a real group ethos. Um, obviously the Beatles started to fray at the edges, um, as they progressed, but, but early on, especially, you know, 1961 through 1966, the Beatles were such a tight knit group and the McLean family band was really the same way. They, they brought out the best in each other. Um, they made the other members of the band better and they supported each other so well. Um, so I, I think those are some, some good points of similarity. 
Sure, and you also mentioned that neither band could read music, and in fact, the patriarch didn't want them to read music because he thought it might limit their inventiveness. I thought that was fascinating. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. That he, that was a real dilemma for him, and it was uh, interesting when they uh, performed the Bluegrass Concerto, obviously written by a classical composer, and uh, it was very complicated how they learned the parts and learned to integrate their parts with the um members of the symphony and pops orchestras they were performing with. It, it's just fascinating. So, you, so, you know, folks, you better buy the book and read more about that. <laughs> um, so before we close, um, I want to give you a chance. Is there something you didn't get to say about the band or maybe a favorite song you want to, you know, tell us a bit about um, wherever you want to take this last question? Yeah. Yeah. Go to YouTube and, and, and type in McLean family band. You'll find lots of great performances. We haven't spoken much about Berea college. Um, uh, Raymond Kay started teaching classes there, some of the first university courses taught on bluegrass music, and all the kids went on to become um, educators, as, educators as well. Raymond W. Um, became the, uh, the uh, leader, the director of the bluegrass pro, uh, music programs at East Tennessee, East Tennessee State University and later Moorhead State University. Ruth McLean taught at Moorhead. Michael McLean taught at Belmont College in Tennessee. Um, their, Raymond K.'s father, Raymond F., was the president of Transylvania College and even president of the American University in Cairo. So they had a real um, tra tradition of uh, being educators in the family, too. So another fascinating chapter of the book is, is their um, work as educators and Raymond K.'s time at Berea College in Kentucky. Yeah, no, you mentioned, uh, I think, in the book that, you know, Berea was like the, quote-unquote, Oberlin of Kentucky, a very innovative yeah, school. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing place. The uh, The students don't pay any tuition. They do have to work, um, but uh, they... Uh, they they go there tuition free and it was um, it was the first non segregated co coeducational college in the South. It, it's an amazing place with a truly unique um, mission and vision. Cool. So Paul, our, our time is about up. I want to thank you again for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number forty one bringing bluegrass to the world. My guest has been Paul Jenkins. He is the author of Bluegrass Ambassadors, the McLean Family Band in Appalachia, and the world. You can find more information about this episode by going to my latest blog posting at https emotionswizard.com, plural. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. To check out other episodes, you can visit my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Since we've been talking, obviously, about bluegrass music today, I came across this quote from Alison Krauss, who said of bluegrass music, you can't help but respond to its honesty. It's music that finds its way deep into your soul because it's strings vibrating against wood and nothing else. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you.